When I was living in New Jersey pastoring there, one of the ministries that we had in our church was a ministry called Heavenly Disaster Relief. And what we would do is basically when there was a local disaster or some disaster in the U.S., a team of us would go from our church and we would help alleviate human suffering. And one of the groups that we partnered with, and by the way, we've been doing that here at Calvary Chapel. We just took a trip recently back to North Carolina. You'll hear about that in September. But we went through Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse is a great organization. They basically provide everything. All you got to do is show up, and they're very Christ-centered. They want you to preach the gospel to people. And so we had this heavenly disaster team. Well, I got to thinking about our text this morning And what we want to talk about this morning is how to be a heavenly-driven Christian. How to be a heavenly-driven Christian. So turn, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and the title of this message is How to Be a Heavenly-Driven Christian. We want to look at verses 18 all the way into chapter 4. We're going to end the book of Colossians this morning. And John is going to embark upon a new study next week, as he mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. Now, let me give you an overview of what we looked at, the bird's eye view. If you remember the book of Colossians, the first two chapters, Paul deals with problems in the church. He basically lays a doctrinal foundation because the false teachers in Colossae were attacking the person of Jesus Christ. They were demoting Jesus. They were not affirming the full deity of Christ. And so in chapters one and two, he has to argue for the supremacy of who Jesus is. Furthermore, in chapters 1 and 2, they were attacking the gospel message, saying that you're not saved by faith alone. Again, as I mentioned last time, these are the two areas that demons often attack, the person and work of Christ and also how a person is saved. And so he answers those two attacks in chapters 1 and 2. He lays the doctrine down. Now when you get to chapters 3 and 4, the apostle Paul gets practical. He says, in light of the doctrine... Here's how to live the Christian life. And you know, this is where the nitty-gritty comes. And so in chapters 3 and 4, he hits a lot of different issues. Now, the reason why I named this sermon, How to Be a Heavenly Driven Christian, is because the beginning of chapter 3, John looked at this last week, you'll notice it says, set your mind on what? The things above. Keep seeking the things above. In other words, Paul says you're a new creation in Jesus Christ. He says you died you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ, you're seated with Christ, and he says you're coming back with Christ. And because of your position, because you're seated in the heavenlies, he says have a heavenly mindset. Seek the things above. Obviously, we got to live on this earth, we got to take care of things, but he's saying we need to have a heavenly mindset. Hence, I've entitled this message, How to Be a Heavenly Driven Christian. And what he's going to do here is he's going to make it very, very practical for us. There's four ways in which he tells us how to be heavenly driven Christians. Let's look at the first way. Number one, we need to cultivate biblical relationships. We need to cultivate biblical relationships. Now, what he's going to do is talk about four different types of relationships that most of us are involved in all of these. He talks about the husband and wife relationship. He talks about the parent-child relationship, and then he talks about the master-slave relationship. And today, in our culture, we don't deal so much with the master-slave, but we do deal with the employer and employee relationship. So let's break each of these down, 
And let's see how we can be heavenly driven in these relationships. First of all, he deals with the wives. Notice what he says to the wives in verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, it's fitting because God designed it that way and because it pleases God. Now, Paul's command here to wives is to submit to your husband. That word means to line up under, and it means to follow your husband's leadership. And I know that's difficult. There are a lot of women who struggle with this, especially if they're married to somebody who's hard to submit to. But Paul's injunction is submit to your husband. The only time you're not to do that, ladies, is if your husband asks you to do something that is unbiblical. Why is it tough sometimes for women to submit to their husbands, even though they are born again and they're spirit-filled? Well, I think there's several reasons why, ladies, sometimes it's tough. And if you struggle with this, you're not alone. Men struggle, as we're going to see, with loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And none of us are going to do this perfectly. I don't know about you, but I fall short in this area, and I'm sure you do as well. But I think wives struggle with submission following their husband's lead, being a helpmate, meeting the needs of their husband. There's several reasons they struggle with it. Number one, the curse in Genesis. When God cursed Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, he said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. Not sexual desire, but he's talking about desire to control. And he says, your husband will rule over you. So it's part of your fallenness, ladies, to not want to submit. Furthermore, Some of you are wired in such a way in your personalities where you're a strong leader. You're the type of person that basically likes to take control, or maybe you just have a general bent towards rebellion. And then some ladies have said to me over the years as a pastor, I struggle with submitting to my husband because my husband is not a good spiritual leader. My husband is incompetent. My husband doesn't take leadership. And I struggle sometimes with his decisions. He makes a lot of bad decisions that get us into trouble financially, relationally, and I just can't trust him. And so listen, we understand. It is a struggle at times. But God wants women to submit to their husbands. Now, there's a lot of baggage associated with the word submit. Let me, let me unpack some misunderstandings when it comes to this issue of submission. Submission doesn't mean, ladies, you can't have an opinion or ever disagree with your husband. Now, obviously, you don't want to be a cantankerous woman who's always disagreeable. If your husband says black, you say white. If he says right, you say left. You don't want to be that type of person, but it doesn't mean you're always going to agree with your husband if you're submissive. It doesn't mean you're a doormat that's going to be walked over all the time. That's not what submission means. It doesn't mean you wait on your husband hand and foot and you basically are his slave. You're at his beck and call. Nor does it mean that your identity is wrapped up in your husband and you have no identity of your own. You are a person. You have an identity. God has made you who you are. And then finally, it doesn't mean that you never make decisions. You know, there are times where my wife has made decisions and I have followed her lead. You know, Ephesians says, submit to one another in love. But when it comes to the general leadership of the home, God has established the male to be the head of the home. Just as Christ is the head of the church and just as Christ submits to the Father, so wives are to submit to their husbands as husbands submit to Christ. You see, there is a pecking order. 
There's not a lot, there's not inequality. Listen, within the Trinity, there is equality. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal, but the Son submitted to the Father, and the Spirit's role is to exalt the Son. And so God has established that DNA within the home. The husband is the head of the home, and the wife lovingly submits to him and seeks to be a helpmate to her husband. Now, I know this is a struggle at times. In fact, I was reading an article about a woman who went into a bookstore, and there was a bookshelf with uh, all these different items on them, and they were at a discounted rate because it said the products were damaged. And so she noticed this one product that basically it was uh, made out of ceramic. It had a husband and a wife, and they were leaning towards one another, touching uh, each other's heads. And on the bottom, it said, congratulations, you know, 10th anniversary. And she was thinking, well, why is this at a discounted rate? I don't see any problem with it. And so as she looked at the tag, it told the problem. It said the wife was becoming unglued. And you know, there are women who become unglued when they hear this idea of submitting to their husbands. But listen, ladies, that's where you find your sense of fulfillment is following your husband's lead. You say, well, I don't always agree with him. You know what? You can agree to disagree and still follow his leadership because he's going to be held accountable to God. The only time you rebel is if he's going to do something or ask you to do something that is unbiblical. I remember when my girls were little, my wife and I talked, I wanted to get a gun, and we disagreed over it. My wife's not against guns, but with the girls in the house being young, she didn't feel comfortable with it. And so we went back and forth discussing it, and I finally said, well, I feel that I need to get a gun because I want to be able to protect the house. And so ultimately, I made the decision. She didn't agree with it at the time, but you know what? She submitted to that and never brought it up again. Plus, I told her, we're moving to the south. We got to get a gun. I mean, come on. Then he shifts to husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. In other words, don't treat them harshly. Don't cause them to get angry and bitter and resentful towards you. And the way you avoid that is he says, husbands, love your wives. Now, if you read Ephesians, it says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. This is agape love. It's a sacrificial love. It's the love of choice the love of will. It's not just romantic love. It's not just erotic sexual love. This is a a decision that you're going to sacrifice for your wife. And again, just like it's hard for women sometimes to submit to their husbands, it's hard for men to love their wives. I know I fall short in this. And I think there are a number of reasons why. Again, Genesis 3.15, the curse. He says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband but he shall rule over you. See, men's tendency is they want to control and they want to dominate. Now, obviously, I'm speaking in generalities here. This isn't true for everybody, but husbands tend to want to dominate, and that's part of the curse. They don't love their wife like they should. Furthermore, men tend not to be as emotional. They tend not to be nurturers. Not all men. There's some men that are very sensitive and they're very tuned in, but a lot of times men are insensitive. Men are somewhat indifferent to their wife's needs. They're very self-centered. We tend to be that way, more task-driven. Women are more relational. It's the way God has wired them. And so for a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church is sometimes a very difficult thing to do. And listen, none of us can do this in our own strength. 
We have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a struggle at times. There is give and take. There's a lot of forgiveness. There's a lot of willingness to flex and to change. I've been married almost 30 years, and Laura and I have locked horns many, many times. And at times we've said, Lord, this is hard work. And it is hard work. So if you're married and you say, man, marriage is very, very difficult. Am I doing something wrong? The answer is no. This idea of following the husband's leadership and then the man loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And by the way, husbands, if we love our wife the way Christ loved the church, a woman's going to submit to her husband more readily. But here's the key. You got to stay connected to God in your walk. Because if you're connected to God in the Word and in prayer and you're a Spirit-filled Christian, it's going to make it a lot easier. Why? Because you're going to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. On the other hand, if you get in the flesh, the sparks are going to fly. In fact, it reminds me of this prayer that a lady prayed when she was at a prayer meeting. Here's what she said, Dear Lord, I pray for wisdom to understand my man. Love to forgive him and patience for his moods. Because, Lord, if I pray for strength, I'll beat him to death. Amen. <laughs> well, now he shifts to children. He talked about the husband and wife. Now he's going to go to children and fathers. Notice what he says in verse 20 about the children. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Again, unless they ask you to do something unbiblical, you are to submit to your parents and obey them. Why? For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because God has established authority. Again, husband is the head of the wife. The parents are the head of the children. There is a pecking order. And you see, God works through authority and submission. Now, as a parent, this is something you have to teach your children at a young age, and God wants us to discipline them in love in, in order to help them line up under God's Word. Ultimately, your goal is to point them to God. Because listen, God has put you as the authority in their life for a season, and your goal is to ultimately transfer that authority from you to God. That's why you got to teach them in obeying us, you are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? Some kids do that readily, and there are other kids that are very strong willed. Everybody usually has one kid that is very, very strong, and some of you may have children that have rebelled. You're not a perfect parent. Maybe you've done what you could. You created a, a Christ-centered home, but you have a child that has chosen to go their own way, and some of them may still be in sin. And I understand. We have wrestled with that. It's a very grievous thing. But you know what? We need to teach this to kids today because we have lost this in the American culture. We have totally rebelled in our culture against authority. And you know what's responsible for that? The media today and music is indoctrinating our kids to be totally rebellious. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says in the latter days, it says children will be disobedient to their parents. We want to know why there's all these riotings going on, why there's problems in institutions and schools today why kids today are totally disrespectful to those in authority over them, it is because the breakup of the home, and furthermore, it is because the media and music today is pushing this attitude of rebellion. Well, then he shifts to fathers. In verse 21, he says, fathers, and why does he sing aloud fathers here? Well, in that culture, fathers, again, were the, the lead individuals, and they were very strong-handed. They were very authoritarian. Obviously, this applies to mothers too. He's not limiting it to fathers, but he says, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. 
In other words, if a father is very, very harsh and he rules with an iron fist, what happens is children get discouraged and they chafe under that type of leadership. Now, what are some ways that we can basically discourage our kids, especially as fathers? I think there are a number of ways. Comparison or favoritism. If you compare your child to other children or you show favorites in your home or you're overcritical. Now, as parents, we got to be critical. We got to point out things. But if we never praise our kids, they're going to get very, very discouraged. Unrealistic expectations. You know, you got to make all A's. I knew a father that tried to vicariously live out his athleticism through his sons, and his sons chafed under his leadership. He doesn't have a relationship with them to this day. Then there's over-discipline, or if you're overprotective, and finally, unfair treatment. These are some ways that we can often exasperate our children. And so as parents, we got to do regular self-inventory. I know I do. Laura over the years has had to remind me, you need to watch this. You need to stop doing that because you're causing her to feel grief. And so you got to listen to correction. And this is where husbands and wives help, help each other in terms of the parental process of raising children. Well, then he goes to another relationship, and that is slaves, or we would say today, employees. Again, in our culture, slavery has been outlawed, but I know in other countries, this still goes on. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to apply the slave to the employee relationship. He says in verse 22, slaves, or if you're an employee somewhere, you work for somebody else, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. In other words, you're to obey your boss unless he asks you to do something unbiblical. And notice he qualifies it, not with external service. It's not just on the outside, as those merely to please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, you're to do it with the right attitude, you're to have a sense of reverence, and you're to be a good employee. Not just on the outside, God looks at the heart, and he tells us why. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Be a good, honest, hardworking employee. Why? Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, and here it is. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Do you realize that your your boss is not really your boss? Ultimately, Jesus is your boss. And some of you are in jobs that are very, very unfulfilling. Some of you struggle getting up to go to work because you hate your job, and you're doing it just to support your family. And there's some nobility in that because God designed work for us to support our families. But listen, our jobs have transcendent value. They're not just to work so I can get out of debt or meet my family's needs. Do you realize that this idea of separating the secular from the spiritual is not biblical? What I mean by that is, if you look at Sunday as spiritual and then Monday through Friday, what you do on your job as being secular, this verse basically says all of life from God's perspective is spiritual. God is your boss. So if you're a plumber and you unplug that toilet, that's spiritual to God. If you're a lawyer and you defend somebody with integrity, that's spiritual to God. If you are a homemaker who raises little kids and you wash dishes and change diapers, that's spiritual to God. Whatever profession you're in, 
It says, do it with the right heart as unto the Lord, realizing that Jesus is your boss. And he says, do it with integrity and do it because Jesus is your boss. And you know what? That helps you when you're dealing with a difficult, cantankerous boss or a job that is unfulfilling. I think we've all been there before. And it's hard to have that perspective. But you know what? It's a necessary perspective. That means don't cheat your employer. Don't always cut corners. You know, because ultimately our testimony is at stake. And also, he says, you're going to get an inheritance from the Lord. In other words, God is going to reward you not just for Christian service, but he's going to reward you if you're a good employee. He's going to reward you if you serve him with faithfulness on your job. So don't look at your job through the lens of secularism. Look at your job through the lens of biblical spirituality. Your job has transcendent value regardless of what job you are involved in. Why? Because God sanctifies it and he makes it spiritual. And he says in verse 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Listen, God shows no favorites. If you do wrong, you know, you're going to have to give an account on the day of judgment, not for hell and condemnation, because you're a Christian, you're forgiven, but you know what? There's reward, and there is loss of reward. When I look back at my life, I've worked many, many jobs prior to the pastorate, and you know what? Sometimes I wasn't a good employee. I worked for my dad during the summer in Miami, when the humidity was like here. I had to empty containers in the warehouse. I had to go into these containers. And I remember me and my buddy who came with me to work for my dad, we would slip into an air-conditioned room and we'd fall asleep. And my dad would be like, hey, where's my son? Where's my son? He's looking for me. And you know what? I'm ditching out while I'm getting paid. I remember when I worked at R.L. Bryan, which is near the zoo, when I was in seminary, I was nicknamed the Rev. All the people there, most of them were pagans. They called me the Rev. They knew I was going to be a preacher. They knew I was going to seminary. And I remember my supervisor, he really wasn't a strong kind of guy, and so he let people just get away with whatever they wanted. And I remember he said, the head CEO is coming tomorrow. His name was Dickerson. And he said, when Dickerson comes tomorrow, he says, I want you to act busy. Don't be sitting around. Pick up a broom or do something and act busy. And you know what the implication of that is? Once he leaves, go back to your laziness. See, Paul says here, no. He says, you're to do your work as unto the Lord, and that means you're an honest employee. Well, then he goes also to the master relationship or employers. Notice, if you will, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. In other words, if you're a boss, don't use and don't abuse your employees. Don't overwork them and underpay them. Don't belittle them. And I know we've had bosses, and I'm sure you've had bosses that have humiliated you in front of other people. You know what you want to do in the flesh? You want to punch them in the mouth. Or you want to give them a verbal tirade. Probably all of us have been there, and sometimes it's very difficult to be submissive to that. But listen, Paul has a word for bosses, for CEOs, for pastors and churches, don't abuse the people that are under you. Treat them with fairness and justice. Why? He says, because you got a master in heaven. In other words, again, the pecking order, you're going to have to give an account to God as a boss. 
And you know, as a boss, we need to treat our employees with kindness, love, and integrity. You say, yeah, but Mike, I work for a pagan boss. He could care less about the Word of God. You know what? Be a good employee. Do your work. Be a witness to him. Sometimes you're not going to like it. There are times where you don't want to go the extra mile, but God may be calling you to do that. And I know it's tough at times. In India, you know, they don't have labor laws there like they do here. And you know, we're blessed in this country, not only with a lot of work, but an abundance of prosperity. I was reading this week in India, in some of the factories, they conscript young children. I'm talking anywhere from eight, nine, ten years old. They will work them in a factory seven days a week from seven in the morning until eight at night. And you know how much they pay them a day? 20 cents. That is abusing. That is slavery. That is wrong. And I hate the fact that that goes on. But praise the Lord, we have labor laws here. But this goes on all the time in other parts of the world. And so he gives a message to bosses here. And so to sum up, what he's saying is if you want to be a heavenly driven Christian based on chapter 3 verse 1, set your mind on things above, seek the things above. The first way is it starts with cultivating biblical relationships. Whether it be the husband-wife relationship, whether it be the parent-child relationship, or whether it be the employee-employer relationship, he says, live out your Christian faith. This is where the rubber meets the road. Because listen, if Christianity cannot impact our relationships, if Christianity cannot fundamentally transform how we relate to other people, then we might as well walk away from the faith. But you and I know that Christianity does transform relationships. Not perfect, but you know what God is after? We're all going to wrestle in these things. We're all going to blow it. But again, God wants us to get it right. If you blow it on your job, get it right. If you blow it in your marriage, get it right. You're not going to be perfect. But God wants us to live whereby the truth of his word is put on display before the world in our relationships. And I'll tell you what, it's not just this, it's also within the church. And you know why some non-Christians discredit Christianity? It's because they see the hypocrisy in the church. They see that we can't police our own movement. They see the anger, the bitterness, the unforgiveness. They see the rancor and the backstabbing within the church. And you know what they do? They go, why do I want that? I get more love in a bar than I do in a local church. And so it's a wake-up call that we've got to let it transform our relationships. And again, it's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life. You're going to blow it, but get it right with God. And so the first way to be a heavenly driven Christian is we must cultivate biblical relationships. Secondly, if we're going to be heavenly minded driven Christians, we must engage in prayer. Notice if you will, chapter four, verses two through four, he says to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. This would be individually and this would be corporate prayer as well. And then he says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving In verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well. Paul says, pray for me as you're praying. And here's what he asked for prayer for. That God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been in prison. That I may, verse 4, make it clear in the way I ought to speak. In other words, Paul is saying as a church and as individuals, if we're going to be heavenly driven, we need to devote ourselves to prayer. We need to engage in prayer. Why? Well, we know from James chapter 5 
that there is power in prayer, and yet we often doubt that, and we don't pray like we should. In fact, I was reading about this small church in a small town, and on Main Street, this nightclub decided that it was going to open up. It was going to be the only nightclub in town, and the church didn't like it because it would draw a lot of the young people away from God. And so they decided to have an all-night prayer meeting. And what they did when they got together and prayed, they asked that God would burn down the nightclub. And so within minutes after they prayed, lightning struck the nightclub and it burned to the ground. Well, the owner of the nightclub knew that the church had been praying for that, and so he blamed the church, and the church denied culpability. They said, it's not our fault. So they went to court, and they argued their case. And here is what the judge said. After hearing both sides, it seems that wherever the guilt may lie, the nightclub owner believes in prayer while the church does not. Did you get that? The nightclub owner believes in prayer while the church does not. And you know what? Sometimes we really don't believe in prayer, right? Because ultimately, it's seen in our lifestyle. Now, he says several things about prayer in this text that we just looked at. Number one, he says, be consistent. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Don't be a spare tire Christian only. You know, you use a spare tire in emergency situations. He says, no, devote yourself. Be consistent when you pray in verse 2. And by the way, there's two ways that we can be consistent in prayer. One is have set times of prayer. Remember in Mark chapter 1, early in the morning before Jesus dealt with the throngs of people, it says he got up, got away, and he got alone with the Father. Notice he got up. He hit the alarm clock. He got up. And then he got into a place where he was alone from the hustle and bustle. We've got to have those set times of prayer. We all struggle with that. I struggle with it because we get real busy, and what happens is if we don't plan to have prayer, it's not going to happen. So there are set times of prayer if we're going to be consistent, but there's also praying without ceasing. Most of us do this. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says pray unceasingly, and that word in the Greek is used of a hacking cough. You know when you get a cough, you get the tickle in your throat, and you cough, and then you stop, and then you cough again? In other words, throughout the day, offer up prayers to God as you're going along. Have a God consciousness throughout the day. So those are two ways we can devote ourselves to prayer and be consistent. Have set times of prayer and then pray throughout the day. But then he also says this about prayer. We're to be alert. He says keeping alert, having an attitude of alertness when we pray. What does he mean by that? Well, he means know what's going on around you so you can pray intelligently. Or it can also mean be alert because the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, the devil's going to try to keep you from prayer. You got to be alert to what's going on. Here he would say, don't be a Benadryl Christian. Earlier, don't be a spare tire Christian. Now he's saying, don't be a Benadryl Christian. What's a Benadryl Christian? Well, it's a Christian that gets drowsy from the pull of the world. You see, what happens is the world sprays its antihistamine on us, and what happens is we get in a spirit of drowsiness and droopiness, and you know what happens? We're sucked into the vortex of the world, and we're not praying like we should. So he says, if we're going to engage in prayer, we got to be consistent, we got to be alert. Thirdly, he says, be thankful when you pray. Don't be a November 25th Christian. That's Turkey Day, Thanksgiving Day. Hey, we thank God once a year. That's our culture. You know what Paul says? Be thankful all the time. 
He says, when you pray, be alert, but he says also give thanks. Why are we thanking God? Well, thanking him for answers to prayer, thanking him that in spite of my circumstances, God, you're working all things together for good. Don't be a November 25th Thanksgiving type of Christian. And then finally, he says, if you're going to engage in prayer, you must be other-centered. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, he says to the Colossians, as you're praying as a church, he says, pray for me. And he says, pray for two things. Pray that an open door would open so I could proclaim the mystery of Christ, in other words, the gospel, and pray that I would present it as clearly as I should. Paul is requesting prayer, and he wants the Colossians to pray for him. And you know what? You and I should request prayer from other people, and also, we should pray for others. In fact, that's one of the marks of a maturing Christian is they not only pray for themselves, but they begin to pray for other people. We got to be other-centered. It doesn't mean you can't pray for desires and needs in your life. Listen, you're a child of God. God wants you to come to him when you're burdened, when you're struggling, and you have needs. But if only you come to God, give me this, Lord, I'm struggling here, I need this, and you're not praying for the body of Christ, you're missing the point. You see, that's a mark of maturity. In fact, one of the quarterbacks that I love, you'll notice his picture on the screen, Jim Kelly, he played for the U, and he also played for the Buffalo Bills. He had an illustrious career. But I read an article years ago where he got basically mouth cancer. He's been through a lot. And of course, he was healed of it, and then it came back. And he's a committed believer, and in this article, he says, you have prayed for me before in the past. He says, the cancer has now returned. I'm asking you to pray for me again. You'll notice his mouth. You can see where he's had the surgery. And so listen, if you and I are going to engage in prayer, we need to what? Be consistent. We need to be alert. We need to be thankful, and we need to be other-centered. So let me ask you a question. Are you a praying Christian? Are you a spare-tire Christian? I only ask God to help me in emergency situations. And listen, we all struggle with prayer, the consistency of it. You know why? Because we all are dealing with so many things in our culture, television, social media, our children playing sports. And you know what happens? Good things that are not necessarily bad pull us away from what's most important. And you know, I have to sometimes stop what I'm doing and say, all right, Lord, I got to get and I got to take a walk. One of the things that I love to do is I like to take a walk and pray. And I got to focus on the Lord because it's easy to be so busy in ministry, we're not on our knees praying. And listen, the power of the church is not in its programs, it's in its prayer. And yet the church in America today, you know why we don't see power in the American church? You want to know why the world has infected the church more than the church has infected the world? It is because we are a prayerless people. We don't believe in the power of prayer corporately. As I've said to you many times, if we had a corporate prayer meeting, what happens is it's like a spirit of drowsiness comes on everybody, and you get 10 people. But if I said, hey, we're going to be serving free steak and eggs this morning, how many people would show up? You know why? Because prayer is hard work. And listen, it is the need of the moment right now in our country. We are at a crossroads in this nation. I know some of you don't think that, but trust me on this. We are in a crossroads in this nation. And if we don't pray, I'm telling you in the next 10 to 20 years, America is going to be a fundamentally different nation than what we were raised in. Our children and grandchildren are not going to grow up in the America that we once knew. And so the church has to pray. Listen, we gather on Wednesday night. 
We hear the word and now we're adding corporate prayer for the last 10 to 15 minutes. I want to encourage you to come out. Well, there's a, another way, a third way that you and I can be heavenly-minded, heavenly-driven Christians. Not only cultivate biblical relationships, not only engage in prayer, but thirdly, reach out to non-believers. Notice, if you will, verses 5 and 6. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. Now, outsiders are non-believers, and notice what he says, making the most of the opportunity, let your speech, verse 6, always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. If you and I are going to be heavenly-minded Christians, we got to be evangelistic Christians. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to be a Billy Graham, and I know some of you struggle with this. You say, it's not my personality. I really struggle with being inward. I can't walk up to strangers. Listen, no one said you have to do cold evangelism. I happen to do that, and I feel comfortable with it. Some of you don't, and that's fine. God works with your personality. He knows what you struggle with. And listen, if you don't have the gift of evangelism, you're not going to do it as frequently and as passionately as someone who has the gift. But guess what? There are people that have the gift of mercy, and I don't have that gift. And you know what? They're going to show mercy in a far greater way than I ever will. They're going to bleed with people so much better than I do. Does that mean that I'm wrong? No. And if you don't have the gift of evangelism and you don't do it with frequency and passion, it doesn't mean that you're wrong and something's wrong with you. However, we are all called to be witnesses. So you don't want to say, I'm going to leave that to the professionals, Mike and John. No, the Bible says that you are to be a witness for Christ. And so work where you're at and have a person. Work on at least one person. That's why we've been talking about it. Each one, reach one. But let me tell you what some Christians do. They basically put it out of their mind and they say, hey, I'm not going to reach my environment. Some of you have been on your job for years and you've never opened your mouth for Christ. I want to encourage you to take that step of faith and to reach others for Christ. Now, notice what he says here about reaching lost people. He makes several things. Number one, he says, watch how you live. What does he say? He says, walk in what? wisdom towards outsiders. Wisdom to the Jew was being skilled at godly living. And he's saying, make sure in a sense that you are walking wisely. You're living the Christian life. There's a man by the name of Dr. Will Houghton. Dr. Will Houghton pastored in New York, a big Baptist church, and then he became the president of Moody Bible Institute. He died in 1946. Well, at some point in his ministry career, he took a Baptist church in Atlanta and he pastored that church. And there was a non-believer in his church that wanted to see if he practiced what he preached. So you know what this non-believer did at his own expense? He hired a private detective. And this private detective's goal was to follow Dr. Will around, him not knowing, and to observe if he practiced what he preached. At the end of two weeks, the private detective came to that non-believer and said, you know what? As I've observed his life, he practices what he preaches. And that non-believer gave his life to Jesus Christ. You see, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Not, in, not only wise in how you deal with them, but also in your living. But he also says this in re relation to reaching non-believers, look for opportunities or watch for opportunities. You know, God drops opportunities for us to build relationships and reach non-Christians. But you know what? If you're like me, there are times where I've squandered those opportunities. And I've had people die a week later. And I said, man, I blew that. 
I should have shared the gospel. On the other hand, there are many opportunities that I've taken advantage of. Just this week, I always try to reach my neighbors, the people in front of me, the people beside me. I just feel like wherever God places me, it is my responsibility to pray for my neighbors and try to reach out to them. And I don't do it right away, but my neighbor to the right of me, he recently had a stroke. He's an older man, 80 years old, and I found out he was working at Burger King, listen to this, 50 hours a week, and he's 80 years old. Well, he had a stroke, and he has a caretaker, some guy from New Jersey, I guess they're friends, I don't know how he got there, but this guy from New Jersey is taking care of him. The man should have died, but he survived. And so, this past week, my daughter comes into my room, it's like 10.30, and she says, Dad, I can't sleep. The guy next door keeps playing his music real loud. And I thought, oh boy. I said, all right, I'll deal with it. So I put on my clothes, I go downstairs, and he's in the truck of the older gentleman. And he's got the music blared up, it's bass, he's got headphones on, he's like this. (laughs) I go out to the window and I knock on the window. Finally he goes like this. Rolls down his window. I said, hey, John. I said, hey. I said, would you mind turning down? I didn't go up to him and say, hey, dude, if you don't turn that radio down, I'm going to cut your throat. I didn't say that. Even though from New Jersey, he probably would have received that very well. I said, hey, would you mind turning that down? I said, my daughter can't sleep and the baby and stuff. And he was like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. And so we got in a conversation and he began to pour out his heart to me. And he began to say how it's difficult being a caretaker. He can't do anything, and he's struggling with depression. And I said, would you mind if I pray for you right now? So I prayed with him. And one of the things he said to me, he said, you know, it's my birthday tomorrow. And he says, I can't go anywhere. I said, how about this? I said, how about I get you some pizza? He's like, looked at me. He said, really? I said, yeah, I'll buy you a couple slices at Papa Gio's because he's from Jersey, and we know that Jersey pizza is better than Carolinian pizza. (laughs) You know that's true. And so I got him some pizza the other day. You know what? I haven't shared Christ with him, but I'm laying the groundwork. You see the opportunity? Sometimes it's building bridges into people's lives. And so Paul here says, in reaching non-believers, watch how you live, watch for opportunities. And then he says, watch your words. He says, let your words be what? Filled with grace, seasoned with salt. Salt does what? It creates a thirst. And so you know what he's saying here? Be a sweet and salty Christian. Grace is sweetness, salty is salt, you create a thirst. In other words, to know how to answer people. You've got to be able to deal with people where they're at. How I deal with a religious person and how I deal with an atheist are different. How I tailor what I say to them is different. You say, I don't know how to do all that. Well, you know what? Just share your testimony. I was once blind, but now I see. That's what the blind men did in John 9. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be filled with all kinds of rhetoric. You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to share your testimony if that's all you can share. But he says, look, be careful in how you deal with people. You know, some people, they need more of a firm message. When I deal with atheists that are very arrogant and pompous, I deal with them a little bit harder. I don't belittle them, but I'll come back. On the other hand, if I got a broken person here, I don't look down on them and say, you know, you're a wicked sinner if you just repent. You don't do that. How I deal with a religious person who believes in Jesus, but they don't have fruit and they're depending on their good works, that's different. You see, tailor the message. Always be filled with grace as you speak to people, but also sprinkle in salt. And listen, we are the salt of the earth, but some of you got to get out of the salt shaker. 
Some of you got to get out of the salt shaker. No one knows that you are salty. I was reading a funny story about a guy. This is a true story. He was a barber, and he owned a barber shop. And he realized that he wasn't witnessing enough to his customers. So he said one night, he said, Lord, tomorrow the first person that comes through my doors, I'm going to witness to them. And so he gets up, goes into work, and then the first customer comes in. And he says, hey, can I help you? The guy says, yeah, I need to be shaved with a razor. He says, okay, would you sit down? I'll be back with you in just a minute. So he goes to the back, and he falls on his knees, and he says, Lord, I'm scared to death, but I told you, Lord, the first person that comes through the doors, I'm going to witness to. And so he picks up a razor, and he picks up his Bible, and he walks out to the guy. And the first thing he says to the guy is this, are you ready to die? He's got a razor and a Bible in his hand. But you know what? We understand his intent. And so if you want to be a heavenly driven Christian, you need to reach out to non-believers. Well, finally for this morning, there's a fourth thing that you and I can do if we're going to be heavenly driven, and that is we must be willing to serve others. Now, Paul does, at the end of this letter, he gives typically, like he does in a lot of letters, greetings. If you want to read the longest greeting, read Romans chapter 16. He gives a litany of names there. Some of them are actually humorous. My favorite in Romans 16 are the two women, Trophina and Trophosa. Those would be two great names for twin daughters. But here, he basically mentions some servants. Many of these people were on his apostolic team that helped him, and they served alongside of him. And I think the principle here is not just greeting these people, but it's to show that they were involved in serving God. Now, there are three types of bones in the church. There's what I would call a jawbone. These are people that like to do a lot of talking, but not a lot of serving. Then there is the wishbone. Oh, I wish this would happen. Why doesn't our church do this? And I wish this would happen. And I wish that would happen. And so you got the jawbone and you got the wishbone. And then finally, you got the backbone. These are the people that don't just talk. They don't just wish. But you know what? They bear the burdens of the church. And you know what? Not for the church, but for Jesus Christ. Someone said to me in between services, they texted me and said, you forgot one other bone, a bonehead. I said, well, I better not mention that one. But you know what? There are some people that are boneheads in the church, and I say that lovingly because they're stubborn. They don't want to get involved. Well, let's see how he mentions these people who are willing to serve. Notice, if you will, verses 7 through 9. As to all my affairs, what's going on with me in prison, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. Notice he mentions the word servant there. Will bring you information. For I sent him, verse 8, to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Notice that Tychicus was FedEx. He was a human FedEx. You know what his job was? To go back to Colossae and tell the Colossians how Paul was doing. They didn't have text message. They didn't have cell phones in that day. And so this guy gave of his time to take a boat and walk on land in order to tell the Colossians what's going on with Paul. Because remember, Paul was in Rome when he wrote the letter to the Colossians. He was in prison. So Tychicus was a servant. And so was Onesimus. Notice what he says in verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number... Onesimus was part of the Colossian church, and that's why many scholars believe that 
the church at Colossae met in Philemon's home. Remember the letter to Philemon at the end of your New Testament, that little New Testament postcard? Remember he wrote to Philemon and he said, hey, I know your slave Onesimus stole from you, but I've led him to Christ and I want you to forgive him and take him back and not only treat him as a brother, but he implies set him free. Well, here's Onesimus with Paul, ministering to Paul. He's going to send Onesimus back to Colossae, and he also, it says here, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Now listen, some of you are servants in the sense that you don't have a spectacular ministry. These guys didn't have a spectacular ministry, but they're willing to get involved, and they were willing to be information carriers. Are you willing to do the menial thing? You don't have to have all the spectacular gifts, but you know what? God will honor your faithful service wherever that is. It doesn't have to be spectacular. You don't have to have speaking gifts or leading gifts. God will not forget any work you've done for him, Hebrews 6.10 says. He will reward you, but be faithful. Well, he goes on and he mentions some more servants as we wind down in verses 10 and 11. Aristarchus, he was from Thessalonica, one of Paul's apostolic members. My fellow prisoner, he was with Paul in jail, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas's cousin, Mark. We know about Mark. Remember on Paul's first missionary journey, he jumped ship and he didn't want to go back. We don't know all the reasons why. He probably couldn't hack it. Well, here he's ministering with Paul. You've heard about Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And verse 11, and also Jesus, who is called Justice, he says, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. In other words, all of them were Jewish. Luke was the only Gentile. He says, they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Notice Aristarchus and Mark and Justice, you know what they were? They were encouragers. You can be an encourager. You can pick up the phone and call somebody. You can go to the hospital and visit somebody. You can encourage somebody along the way and talk to them outside and be a word of wisdom to them. Listen, ministry is not just what happens here. It's not just missionaries. It's the little things that God looks at. They were willing to serve. And then he mentions this guy, And I love what he says here in verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of your number, he was from the Colossian church, probably started the Colossian church. Paul never started the Colossian church, never met the Christians there. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Notice they're all slaves and servants. Sends you his greetings. And I love this. Always laboring earnestly for you in prayers. That word labor earnestly, it means to wrestle. It's used of warfare. It's used of athleticism. This guy was struggling in combat to pray for the Colossian Christians. Why? That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. He was praying that the Colossians would mature and not be victimized by the false teachers. Verse 13, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Laodicea and Hierapolis were cities that were right next to Colossae. Epaphras probably started or planted those house churches. And he says this guy was laboring in prayer. Why? Because he was a true shepherd. He cared about the people. And then finally, we see the last list of servants in verses 14 through 18. Luke, he was a Gentile. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. Notice he was a physician by trade. He ministered to the needs of Paul. He sends you his greetings, and so does Demas. 
You know who Demas was? He served Paul, but if you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, Demas forsook Paul at the end and loved this world. You know, there are, there are supposed Christians that start off serving God and they defect, they fall away. He says in verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and look at this woman here. Notice how she served God, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Now, it may be that the church at Heropolis or Laodicea met in her house. Churches didn't have church buildings back then. That wasn't until about 250 AD, archaeologists unearthed an area, and they had taken a house and converted it into a church. At this juncture, churches met in homes, and this woman was willing to open up her home. And then Paul says this, when this letter is read among you, when you read this Colossian letter, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, we don't have the letter that he wrote to Laodicea. We're not sure. We do have it. I looked it up this morning, and I read it again. It's as short as Philemon, and it has the ring or the flavor of the book of Philippians. We don't know if it's authentic or if it's a forgery. But whatever it is, some think the letter of the Laodiceans was the book of Ephesians. You know what he's saying? Cross-pollinate. Take the letters, and you read it, and then send it here. And you know what's going on here? The New Testament canon is being formed. The 27 books of the New Testament hadn't been formed yet, but it's beginning to organically gain momentum, and the Bible is going to be formed. He says, read the letters. Verse 17, I love this. Say to Archippus, say to Mike Nimmer, say to John Hoppy, say to Mary Jane, say to Rick, Take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Who was Archippus? He may have been the pastor of the Colossian church. Some people believe Archippus was the son of Philemon. We don't know. But he says, tell him to be faithful. Tell him to take his ministry seriously. And then finally, in verse 18, he closes out the letter. Notice Paul's contribution. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you all. Now, as we close, I want you to notice this slide here. Here are the list of all the people that were willing to serve. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justus, Demas, Luke, Epaphras, Nympha, Archippus, and Paul. These were the list of servants that were willing to serve God to be heavenly-driven Christians. Let me ask you a question. Can I add you to that list? Can I add you to that list? Of course you can, Pastor Mike. I'm going to sign the clipboard and not show up. Can I add you to the list? You say, Mike, I'm not ready to get involved now. And I understand that. Sometimes we need to receive for a season. I get it. But listen, you know what God doesn't want? Christians that come year after year and they don't do anything. They sit, soak, and sour. Sit, soak, and sour. Don't be a Christian who sits, soaks, and sours. God wants you involved. And you know what? He's gifted you uniquely. Look at this slide right here. Your shape. I'm not talking about your physical shape, but your spiritual shape. You have spiritual gifts. You have passions or desires. That's what heart represents. What do you love to do? How has God given you spiritual gifts? What are your abilities, your talents? Your talents you're given at your physical birth, your spiritual gifts you're given at your new birth, then you have a unique personality to serve God, and then you have life experiences. You know what God does? He takes your unique shape, and He uses it to serve other people. You have a shape. God wants you to serve. If you're going to be a heavenly-driven-minded Christian, you can't sit, soak, and sour. 
I'll end with this quote. I like what Blanchard says. There is a difference between interest and commitment. Some of you have an interest in getting involved, but here's the problem. When you are interested in something, you do it only when it's what? Convenient. When you are committed to something, you accept no excuses. What a quote. Some of you are interested, but that's why you never get involved. Month after month, year after year, you sit, you soak, and you sour. And listen, I say that as a loving shepherd because you know I love you, but my job is to challenge you because Ephesians 4 says, John and I have the role of equipping you to do the work of ministry. So if you want to be a heavenly driven Christian, get involved. You say, what do I do? Get involved. Find something to do. Start serving. God wants to raise up a body here that's willing to serve. So you want to be a heavenly driven Christian? What are the four things we learned this morning? Number one, you need to cultivate biblical relationships. Number two, you need to engage in prayer. Number three, you need to reach out to non-believers. And finally, you need to be involved and be willing to serve God with the shape that he's given you. Are you willing to be a heavenly driven Christian this morning? Not just in word, but in deed. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for reminding us of the truth of your word. Lord, your word comforts us, it challenges us, and it convicts us. Help us, Lord, to be heavenly-driven Christians. Because we've died with Christ, because we're buried with Christ, and because we're raised with Christ and coming back with Him. Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, apply these principles to our life. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe God has spoken to you. He's challenged you. Maybe He's encouraged you. Maybe He's convicted you. Would you do business with God right now and say, yes, Lord, I'll make that commitment to get involved. Yes, Lord, I'll start praying. Yes, Lord, I'm willing to reach out to my coworkers and my neighbors. Sometimes we all have to be sick and tired of not doing anything. And we've got to drive that stake in the ground and say, all right, Lord, no more just being interested. I got to commit. And would you commit this morning to do what God has spoken to you? Father, sink this message into our hearts and help us to apply it. And God, all of us come to you humbly because we realize we fail, we fall short. But I thank you that you are gracious. You are merciful and you are forgiving. In spite of our imperfections, in spite of our laziness and failure, you show us mercy. But Lord, you want us to have willing hearts. In Jesus' name.